Welcome to Salisbury Sermons, a podcast ministry of First United Methodist Church in Salisbury, North Carolina. Today's sermon is a continuation through the story 2021, our discipleship emphasis for this year, where we are encountering God anew in the story of Scripture from beginning to end. Our gospel lesson is in Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 13. Listen with me for God's word. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, Tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say Elijah must come first? He replied, Elijah is indeed coming, and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but they did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man is about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them about John the Baptist. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Every United Methodist pastor has to answer a series of questions before they are admitted into full membership in an annual conference. This has been going on since the time of John Wesley. The first question is, have you faith in Christ? The second question is, are you going on to perfection? Are you going on to perfection? Seventeen more questions follow this. Bishop Reuben Job shares a wonderful story in one of the devotional books I had. He writes, Once during the turbulent 60s, Bishop Gerald Kennedy was asking these historic questions of candidates standing before him in the presence of the annual conference session. When asked if he was going on to perfection, one candidate quickly responded, No. Bishop Kennedy quickly replied to him, then where are you going? It was an appropriate question then, and it is an appropriate question now, not only for preachers, but for all Christians. 
where are you going? If you continue on the path that you're on in your life, where will it all end? Are you going on toward God? If not, then where are you going? As we read in the story this coming week, we'll read the words of the Gospel of Matthew in the chapters where Jesus is on the Sermon on the Mount. He is on the mountain teaching his disciples and the crowds that follow him. And it seems like almost an impossible standard. It's something that we're to point our lives to. It's a vision of how the kingdom of God should be and what God desires for us. One of the lines Jesus says is, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, those perfectionists among us are panicking a little right now because perfectionists always point to having the perfect example of all of their work, doing things for all the right reasons, dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's. But that brings the knowledge that perfection is hard to achieve. But Jesus here is not calling us to a flawless life, one with no mistakes and no errors and no weaknesses. The standard he shares in the Sermon of the Mount is one that the closer we get to it, the more we realize how we have fallen short. But it asks the question, are you going toward God? If not, where are you going? Our gospel text from today is one that's matched to Transfiguration Sunday rather than week seven of the story. And we'll read it again in a few weeks in our lessons. But since this is a high holy day, we focus on this text. Peter, James, and John, and Jesus... By the way, this is Jesus' covenant group, his small group that he spends the most intimate moments of life with. This small group heads up the mountain. They have no idea where they're going. Just prior to this text, Jesus had just told them that he was heading to the cross. He has predicted his death and resurrection, and they are confused. Their minds are swirling with thoughts and emotions. They've known Jesus as a teacher. It's hard enough to achieve his teachings from the Sermon on the Mount, and they know him as prophet. And Peter, at this point, has already confessed he recognizes Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. But this word Jesus has given them, that he will need to die and suffer just doesn't seem to make any sense. The blessing of spending time in a small group together, like covenant groups or connection groups, is that we spend time looking over our lives and looking through the ordinary things to see the glory of God peeking through, to be able to trace the pattern of God working in our life and to see God at work. Peter, James, and John have spent time like this with Jesus, but this is an altogether different experience. Here, Jesus is so full of divine love and presence that 
He is simply glowing. This is a singular and unique event in all of Scripture. That word transfiguration just happens for this moment, this event, this revelation of the glory of Jesus Christ. Jesus isn't just reflecting light like white clothes might do in the sunlight. He is emanating it. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes, well, they contain all of the colors of light and are radiating out to his disciples. It must have been a terrifying and confusing experience, awe-inspiring, but one that just stops you in your tracks. The disciples that are there are able to slow down enough to recognize that Moses and Elijah appear beside Jesus. They represent the prophets and the law. Flanking Jesus, showing us who he really is. But there's something more going on here. A mystery that they can't quite put their hearts and minds around until after the resurrection. It's really funny to me to look at Peter's actions in this. He is taking in this experience, and and he has the urge to just do something. (laughs) This is so beautiful, so miraculous, so unique. We We need to document it, Jesus. We need to commemorate it. He says to Jesus, uh, you know, Lord, there's, there's not much space up here, and I recognize I may not be here long, but, but could I be, build you each a tiny house? Oh, uh, but if it were the modern day, he'd say, uh, Jesus, can we, can we Facebook Live this so other people can see what's going on? Um, or, or how about a selfie? To commemorate this moment. It's so typical of many of us to need to try to do something rather than experience the present that is right in front of us. In the midst of Peter's action and frenzy and desire to do rather than experience the mystery, a cloud comes down and settles over Jesus and Moses and Elijah. The cloud you'll know from reading Exodus is a classic signal for the presence of God. God comes and covers over Jesus, Elijah, and Moses. And a voice from heaven interrupts Peter in his frenzy. He says, essentially, time out, Peter. (laughs) Would you be quiet and learn? Jesus' face is shining like the sun, and... God out of the cloud says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Inviting Peter and all of us when we experience God's glory to to pause, to take it in, understanding that this divine mystery will take some time to understand and experience. When they look up again, Jesus is out of the cloud, his face still shining like the sun with the radiance of God's love. And he comes to them where they've fallen on the ground. 
he offers his touch to them, his healing. He invites them to be raised just as he will be raised and tells them to not be afraid. The disciples are pulled from fear and failure to new life and courage. And together they head down the mountaintop with Jesus to heal crowds and to head toward dark Gethsemane. Again, this small group will be with him there in the terror and darkness of that garden as he heads toward the cross. The glory Jesus reveals to them here is the full glory of God's presence. It's dazzling divine love. And love is worthy of consideration on this Valentine's Day. After all, God is love, we hear in 1 John 4. God is love beyond the cards and chocolate we exchange on days like today. God's love is divine and all-encompassing. Last week, we mentioned prevenient grace, which is God's presence going before us and preparing the way. This week, I want to think about sanctifying grace. This is God's love and grace shining upon us, making us little by little more perfect in love the way that God perfectly loves. God's love is shed abroad in the hearts of all Christians, awakening their love of God. But the problem is this love is weak and sporadic and offset by contrary affections. Christ is one who doesn't just forgive us, but invites us to love more and more like God. God shines the light of love upon us, and we're given an opportunity to respond and reflect a little bit back to God and to our neighbor of love. Each time we bask in God's love and reflect some back to God and our neighbor, we do it a little bit more perfectly, a little bit more like God does. This is sanctifying grace. John Wesley wrote a letter to a lady named Jane March. It's a fascinating letter, and she has apparently written to him or had a conversation where she has said, you know, I'm pretty comfortable with my life the way that it is. I'm, I'm comfortable with people who are in my station and class, and I don't need to go to the prison and visit. I don't need to go to the homes of the poor and visit with them. I'm fine, thank you very much. And John Wesley, the father of Methodism, writes back to her and says, sorry you're willing to settle and miss deeper experiences that God has for you. Go and see the poor and the sick where they are. Take up your cross. Remember the faith. Jesus went before you and will go with you. Put off the gentlewoman do you not bear a higher character? This higher character Wesley is talking about is the image of God that each of us is gifted through Christ. We are all called to Christian perfection by Jesus himself, 
be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. By perfection, we don't mean uh, no mistakes. What we mean is Christian maturity, the intended goal of our life. Holiness of heart and life that reflects fully, as much as we can, the love of God perfectly shining upon us. John Wesley is fond of writing about our tempers or our affections. We all have holy ways and unholy ways. We need God's working in us to replace unholy tempers like desire for status and wealth. We need those replaced by holy tempers, real love of life and God and neighbor. Love and joy and peace are the ground of all holy thoughts, actions, and words. When we are aimed toward Christian perfection and we hopefully reach that goal within this life, love is not just present as a background, but rules everything we do, all our thoughts, actions, and deeds, and no longer a mixture of contrary emotions. To point toward Christian perfection as our goal in this life does not remove all the reality of sin, but it helps to remove our desire to sin. It's not an achievement we earn, but it is a gift of God's grace. All of this grows out of relationship to Christ Jesus. A few years ago, I saw a public ad campaign, a bunch of billboards around the city of Greensboro where we were living at the time. All of them pictured a parent and a child, and at the top it said, you don't need to be perfect to be a perfect parent. You don't need to be perfect to be a perfect parent. To be a parent is to be human, (laughs) but to teach your children how to love, how to be in right relationship with the world, to be able to ask for forgiveness when you make a mistake, to bring your children along in a life of love with you. You don't need to be perfect to be a perfect parent. You don't need to be perfect to achieve Christian perfection. A life of love that reflects God's love. Christian perfection is not just a destination, but a journey that we're on because there's no end to God's grace and no end to God's love. We go deeper and deeper with Christ. I imagine Peter, James, and John really needed this display of God's love, dazzling them, delighting them on the mountain. Because they head down the mountain back into the fray, and the hardest days of their lives are just ahead of them. This moment with Jesus on the mount gives them a glimpse of what is possible. It reflects God's glory into their life. I hope you have someone or several people in your life that you can 
pull up in your mind that display this sort of character of Christian perfection. I know lots and lots of wonderful, fabulous, kind-hearted Christians, and they are wonderful, but as I look across my life, I see two or three people who stand out as reflecting God's love in everything that they do, always have a kind word, always willing to offer themselves in service, know how to rest and relax in God's grace, and yet are always present for those that they love and their community. These few people in your life, call them up into your mind and your heart and ask how God might work in you that your holiness of heart and life might look a little bit like theirs. It's helpful to have an image of what we're aiming for so we know what it looks like when we get there. When we enter into relationship with God and let God work on our heart and our life, our cup doesn't simply get filled with grace. It, it overflows with grace. The monk Thomas Merton once asked a student, how does an apple on a tree ripen? He said, it, it sits in the sun. An apple on a tree only has to remain attached to the tree and lean back and bask in the sun. Nothing the apple does of its own measure could ever cause it to ripen on its own. It's the work of the sun upon it. For us Christians, it's much the same as we seek to be more loving and reflect God's perfection. But we, unlike the apple, we need to move ourselves so that we're basking in the light of Christ's love upon us. It's really appropriate to think about this as we begin the season of Lent this week. Spiritual disciplines, something that we typically focus on during Lent, is the way to make sure that we are basking in the light of Christ's love. In Lent, we understand we need to grow, but glimpsing the glory of God in this transfiguration story, in the reflected light of love of those people in your life that embody the spirit of Christian maturity, it gives us a goal to point toward. We're pointed toward God. It gives us hope as we enter into the spiritual disciplines so that we might grow from strength to strength, more and more into the glory of God. Jesus says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word Jesus uses here is translated better as compassionate or merciful. The invitation here is for us to love as completely and fully as God loves, a love that shines on everyone we encounter, whether they deserve it or not. God's perfection is love, for God is love. 
Today we sing the great hymn, Love Divine, All Love's Excelling. This is in a section of our hymnal entitled Sanctifying Grace. That kind of grace that works on us, our tempers and affections, so that we might be pointed toward Christian perfection. And the text is a prayer for sanctification. Some of the words, Love divine, all love's excelling. Joy of heaven to earth come down. My favorite description of Jesus in a hymn, Jesus, thou art all compassion. Pure, unbounded love thou art. Isn't that beautiful? That's what's shining out of Jesus on the Transfiguration Mount onto Peter and James and John, onto you and me. The text asks the Spirit to breathe into our hearts, to take away our bent to sinning. And the last stanza is a beautiful prayer. Finish then thy new creation, pure and spotless let us be. Let us see thy great salvation perfectly restored in thee, change from glory into glory, from love into deeper love, till in heaven we take our place, till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love, and praise. To be invited to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect seems like a daunting task. But remember, the light of Jesus' love is shining on you. The invitation is to reflect a little bit of that back to God and to your neighbor. A little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more until you too shine with that glory and that love. At the end, Augustine has these words for us. Where do we go? To Christ. How do we go? Through Christ. Onward and onward to perfect love. Let us pray. Lord, I am not perfect. By your grace, let me receive your perfecting love and know your commandments, not as an impossible achievement, but as a life-giving promise, the hope of life eternal. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us. As always, we ask that you would rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, and don't forget to share us with your friends. For more information about FUMC and our mission to make and nurture Christian disciples through the presence and power of God, we invite you to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, and please visit our website at fumcsalisbury.org.